All right, let's start Hamlet, Act 5. We start off with two grave diggers. Uh, now, the stage directions and the speech headings call them the clowns. Now, that doesn't mean like Bozo wearing clown makeup. Those were just the comic actors in Shakespeare's company. Uh, and he always wrote a part for the comic actor because he had a, the same actors working for him all the time. And so this is the big comic role that he has here. Now, you'll hear a lot of people talk about these kind of scenes as comic relief, which I think is kind of a lazy term. Uh, the the comedy, in, at least in Shakespeare, is always very particular to the play that it's in. So let's look at what these two uh, clowns, two grave diggers are doing. Oh, another thing, the, the company that Shakespeare worked with had only probably you know, at most, it would have had a dozen actors. So the actors would have had to play multiple roles, uh, the smaller parts. And I think it's very, very likely that the two actors here we see in the graveyard are Polonius and Ophelia. Or that is, they are the actors who played Polonius and who played Ophelia. And I think that would give an extra dimension to this encounter when we're seeing Ophelia's funeral. Uh, who died in her grief for her dead father, Polonius. So the first uh, uh, grave digger asks, Is she to be buried in Christian burial when she willfully seeks her own salvation? So he's asking, Wait, they're going to have a Christian burial ceremony for a suicide? And he says, Well, yes, she is. But, uh, you know, how can that be unless she drowned herself in her own defense? Um, he says, why well, just found so? He says, that's just the way it is. And the, the, the first gravedigger kind of goes on and gives this kind of uh, chop logic version of a legal argument. Uh, you know, the, the word argal, uh, that's the Latin word ergo, therefore. Uh, he, he kind of knows kind of the language and is playing around with it. He's certainly not as, uh, as smart as he thinks he is. Um, and it, it says that, well, look, now this brings up the idea of Ophelia's death. Was Ophelia's death a suicide? The way that uh, Gertrude uh, recounted it, it sounded like an accident, and yet in some way she was responsible. Um, so again, the, the theme of suicide, which we've seen before in the play, comes up yet again. And the, the gravedigger thinks this is, you know, all very unfair. This is line 26. The more pity that great folk should have countenance in this world to drown or hang themselves more than they're even Christian. You know, those, those rotten one percenters, they get to kill themselves and not have, have, to, have to suffer for it. Um, you know, they, get, they don't have the consequences of, of, uh, uh, that a poor man would have. Or look at, so the, the, the joking, the humor, is clearly thematically related to other things we've seen in the play. Or look at the little joke, that the, the, you know, the actual joke that he tells, uh, who's he that builds stronger than either the mason, the shipwright, or the carpenter? And the first answer is the gallows maker, but the real answer is the grave maker, for the house he makes lasts till doomsday. So the uh, the other uh, gravedigger goes off, and the, the main one, the first gravedigger, is digging the grave. Now, on Shakespeare's original stage, there would have been a trap door in the middle of the stage, 
uh, and this is where the grave is. He, the gravedigger would be standing in that, you know, miming, uh, digging out the, the grave. And uh, that uh, trap door, uh, you know, remember under the stage in Act One, we heard the ghost. And that very trap door may be one of the ways that the ghost had his, uh, made his exits. He may have descended down through that trap door. Um, also, you need to know that in Shakespeare's time, a graveyard uh, did not have kind of neat, exact plots where each person was buried. Uh, you kind of dug a hole and pushed the other skeletons out of the way and put the new body in there. And that's, as we see, what will, what will happen here. Now, Hamlet comes in and says, Has this fellow no feeling of his business? He sings in grave-making. Here's this guy, he's singing this song while he's digging someone's grave. And he says, well, you know, that's his job. You know, he, he's used to it. Um, and as he's, as he's digging out the grave, he finds the, the skulls and bones of other people and just tosses them out of the grave. And Hamlet has this running commentary on it. You know, that skull had a tongue in it and could sing once. Um, notice again that speech and silence motif that comes in. Um, so Hamlet is, as he tends to, universalizing this experience uh, that, you know, these people once were alive and uh, this is uh, the mortality. And think about how different this is from the very intellectual confrontation with death that Hamlet had in his to-be-or-not-to-be soliloquy. Here he's dealing with the ugly physical reality of death. Uh, so they come forward. He comes forward with Horatio, and around line 110, he asks the gravemaker, whose grave is this, Sirrah? Now, Sirrah is just a, a term that you would use to uh, talk to an inferior. Uh, he says, mine, sir. Says, I think it be thine, for thou liest in it. You lie out on it, sir, and therefore it is not yours. For my part, I do not lie in it, yet it is mine. Thou dost lie in it, to be in it, and say it is thine, for it is for the dead, not for the quick. Therefore thou liest. Tis a quick lie, sir, to pull away again from me to you. What man dost thou dig it for? For no man, sir. What woman, then? For none neither. Who is to be buried in it? One that was a woman, sir, but rest her soul, she's dead." And Hamlet says, how absolute the knave is. We must speak by the card, or equivocation will undo us. So this is a kind of verbal humor that's very common in Shakespeare, of kind of being overly literal uh, about what people say. Uh, you know, whose grave is this? Well, it's mine. Uh, who's, who, what man's buried here? No one. No woman either. They, they were a woman, but they're dead now. Um, and notice that the, the grave digger is the first... Uh, uh, person in the play who really gets the better of Hamlet in a verbal exchange. Uh, and that's another reason why I think it would be kind of delicious for it to be Polonius, who's been the butt of all of his jokes throughout the play, if that same actor is then kind of getting some of his own back here. Um, and so he begins asking him about his trade, you know, how long have you been gravedigger? He says, I came to it that day that our last King Hamlet overcame Fortinbras. And remember, we heard about that in the opening of the play, where Fortinbras uh, was, he was, his son, young Fortinbras, is the one who is seeking revenge because old Hamlet killed old Fortinbras. And he says, well, when was that? Yeah, it was the day, very day young Hamlet was born. 
so clearly he doesn't know he's talking to to Hamlet. Um, so they go on like this, and then uh, one skull that they he brings out. This is around line one seventy. The grave digger shows him Yorick's skull, and this is a very famous image. You see a lot of, of paintings and pictures of this of Hamlet speaking to Yorick's skull. It's kind of one of the iconic images of Hamlet. And he he takes it up and looks at it and says, Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatio, a fellow of infinite jest, of most excellent fancy. So now, instead of just seeing these anonymous skulls and kind of making up stories about what happened to them, this is the this is a person that he actually knew and is had a personal connection to. This was the, the court jester that he knew when he was a boy. Um, he said he remembers all of, uh, you know, how, how funny he was. Uh, he says, now get you to my lady's table and tell her, let her paint an inch thick. To this favor she must come. Make her laugh at that. There's that image of cosmetics and makeup and uh, deceit that comes in. Um, so as the scene goes on, the, the, the reality of death is becoming more and more personal. It started out abstract. Now it's somebody he actually knows. And in a minute, he's going to realize that the woman that he loved has died. And he sees the, the court coming in, and, they, and Horatio and Hamlet kind of hide behind. And Laertes is upset. He asks, you know, what ceremony else? Is that, that's all you're doing? And the, the uh, priest says, well, her death was doubtful. Um, you know, we, she, we don't, you know, because the king has made us, we're giving her kind of a, a technically a Christian burial, but we're not really sure about all of it. Uh, and Laertes is, uh, you know, calls out, you know, that his sister has been, has died. And that's when Hamlet says, what, the fair Ophelia? Line three, uh, 232. Um, and so he now he realizes that it's somebody very personal to him who has died. Um, and Laertes jumps into the grave and says, you know, before, you know, bury me with her. This is very kind of, of, of hyperbolic, uh, over-theatrical, melodramatic uh, that he does. And Hamlet comes out at this moment. What is he whose grief bears such an emphasis whose phrase of sorrow conjures the wandering stars and makes them stand like wonder-wounded hearers. This is I, Hamlet the Dane. This is my, my grief makes the stars stand still. And Laertes, the devil take thy soul. So they're fighting in, the, in Ophelia's grave. It's this, this horrible uh, uh, moment in the play. They have to be pulled apart. Uh, and uh, Hamlet says, line 260, I loved Ophelia. Forty thousand brothers could not, with all their quantity of love, make up my sum. Um, and says, you know, whatever you you loved, however much you loved her, I loved her even more in a different way. So we see this competitiveness between them. And Claudius, you know, gets Laertes off, and he, you know, Hamlet goes his way, Laertes goes his. Uh, Claudius wants to save the, this fight for when he can actually kill Hamlet. Uh, so then we begin the final very long scene that ends Hamlet. And it begins with Hamlet filling in Horatio on uh, about what happened to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And he says, uh, line 7, says, Our indiscretion sometimes serve us well, 
when our deep plots do pall, and that should learn us there's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough-hew them how we will. We may have these deep plots and everything, but sometimes the indiscreet thing that we do is actually the right thing, uh, not the, the carefully laid plan. And that, he says, that suggests there's a providence, there's a plan, there's a shape to our lives that we may not know, but is there guiding us. So he tells the story about how he was, he was up, you know, couldn't sleep, and was worried about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. He sneaks into their cabin while they're asleep and if, finds the letter that they were carrying, and he sees that it has the orders for his execution, that his head should be struck off. Um, not no, this is line twenty-three. No, not to stay the grinding of the axe. So uh, you know, um, chop his head off with a, a rusty axe, which would be brutal. It wouldn't be a clean strike. Um, so what does Hamlet do? Well, he, because he's been to college and knows how to write, uh, he writes a new letter that tells them to execute Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, the bearers of this letter and seals it with his father's signet ring. So it looks like it comes from the king of Denmark. Um, and Hamlet says that, uh, line 58, They are not near my conscience. Their defeat does by their own insinuation grow. Tis dangerous when the baser nature comes between the pass and fell insensate points of mighty opposites. So he, he doesn't feel any remorse or guilt. And this is interesting because... Uh, he, he's, he seemed to uh, feel more of a conscience about killing Claudius when he saw him praying, but not hear about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Look, they, you know, when you play with the big boys, you're going to get hurt. Uh, I don't have any sympathy for them. And then in comes this courtier, young Osric. Now, think about how weird it is that Shakespeare is introducing a new character here. And he didn't have to. This could have been an anonymous messenger, as you have many of in Shakespeare. But he actually creates a character. He's this contemptible courtier who Hamlet makes fun of, much the way he made fun of Polonius. Um, but it's a whole new thing. And, uh, you know, one of the, the critical questions that comes up a lot about Hamlet is why Hamlet delays and the, the the best answer, which is just a smart aleck answer, is no delay, no play. Uh, if if Hamlet hears the news that he needs to revenge and he goes and kills Claudius, there's no play. Delay is the whole thing. Remember that the the player king speech about uh, Pyrrhus killing Priam, where he pauses for a moment, but then he kills him. Well, Hamlet, the play, is all about that pause. It's all about those moments in between the big actions. Uh, so much of Hamlet is a digression from the main business, and it's the digressions that we love. It's things like Osric coming in, this comedy routine where he tells him, uh, you should wear your hat on your head. Oh, no, it's hot. No, you really should. He's doing the same thing he did to him uh, here about, oh, it's hot. Uh, no, the wind is northerly, um, that he did with Polonius when he made him see different things in the, in the clouds. So um, Osric comes in, and again, there's a lot of, of uh, verbal comedy uh, here, and they're making fun of a certain kind of, of obsequious courtier who you know speaks beautifully but uh, is really clueless. Um, 
And but the message that he has to bring uh, is that there's going to be this fencing contest, and that the king has bet on Hamlet to win. He says, line one forty six. The king, sir, hath laid, sir, that in a dozen passes between yourself and him, he shall not exceed you three hits. So that they have, and this is the way fencing goes, you know, they have rounds of fencing. So in 12 rounds, uh, he won't be up above, you know, more than three hits above you. Uh, so uh, that's, uh, that's pretty good odds for Hamlet. Uh, and Hamlet agrees to it. And in fact, he thinks he's going to win. He says, round line 190, uh, since he went into France, I have been in continual practice. I shall win at the odds. I was not think how ill all's here about my heart, but it is no matter. So he, he, he has a bad feeling about this, but, says, and, but Horatio says, uh, no, my good Lord, um, um, if, if your mind dislike anything, obey it. I will forestall their repair hither and say you are not fit. He says, no, not a whit. We defy augury. There is special providence in the fall of a sparrow. That's a biblical verse that the, the God sees the fall of every sparrow, every tiny bird. And he said earlier, there's a divinity that shapes our ends. Uh, so he's saying, no, this is just the way it's going to be. If it be now, just not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. Since no man of aught he leaves knows, what is it to leave betimes? Let be. And that's this kind of very almost Zen-like acceptance that Hamlet has of the situation. He says, look, this is all faded. If I die now, that's how it's going to be. If I don't die now, I'll die sometime. All I can do is be ready. The readiness is all. Let be. I think of what a different tone that is from to be or not to be and arguing about well, this side or that side. And now Hamlet is at the point where he is at the just let it be. So in comes the um, uh, the court and Laertes, and Hamlet has this long, very uh, polite and formal uh, apology that he gives to uh, Laertes. And the, the gist of it is that he's saying that it was Hamlet's madness that killed Polonius, not Hamlet, that he's basically having an insanity defense here. And uh, uh, Laertes is a little standoffish about it. You know, he says, I am satisfied in nature, whose motive is the case, in this case, should stir me most to revenge. But in terms of honor, I stand aloof and will no reconcilement till by some elder masters of known honor I have a voice and precedent of peace to keep my name ungored. So he's saying, well, I, I'm, I'm going to provisionally accept this apology, but un, until I hear from uh, kind of uh, older, more experienced people on whether this is uh, legitimate, uh, I'm not going to give my full uh, uh, forgiveness. You know, till that time I received your offered love, like love. Now, so I embrace it freely. Uh, so they could give us the foils, the foils, the, the rapiers that they're going to fight the duel with. And Hamlet says, line 233, I'll be your foil, Laertes. In mine ignorance, your skill shall, like a star in the darkest night, strike fiery off indeed. 
now, what he's saying, he's, he's playing on two meanings of the word foil. Foil is a, a, a rapier, but a foil was also a setting for a gem that made it stand out. And this is the origin of the, the literary term. We still today talk about a character as a foil, and Laertes is a foil for Hamlet. He is a, a, a character that we can compare and contrast with the main character. Uh, Shakespeare's plays are full of this. He uses that idea and this the, the concept, the, the term uh, of foil comes from here in Hamlet. Um, so they're getting these and they're uh, Laertes is taking very carefully taking the unbated uh, blade uh, and just as they're getting ready to uh, start the bout, the king announces that he has uh, an union that is a pearl. That was just a Renaissance name for a pearl. Don't ask. Um, he says he will. Uh, he's, this is lines two fifty. Says and in the cup. This is the cup that Hamlet will drink from. An union shall he throw, rather than that which four successive kings in Denmark's crown have worn. Give me the cups, and let the kettle to the trumpet speak, the trumpet to the cannoneer without, the cannon to the heavens, the heaven to the earth. Now the king drinks to Hamlet. Come, begin. So he's saying that every time Hamlet wins a round, they're going to shoot off the cannons, and Hamlet can take a drink, and when he does, he wins this pearl. Now remember how disgusted Hamlet was with the drinking games that they heard of shooting the cannon off while the king was drinking while they were waiting for the ghost. So you can imagine he's not too excited about this either. So now the duel begins. And this is a place where there's a very big difference between reading the play and seeing it. Uh, Especially in Shakespeare, they're very minimal stage directions, and often they're just uh, supplied by the editor. If you see them in brackets, they've just been added in by the editor. And Shakespeare's original company, they didn't need stage directions. They had Shakespeare right there to tell them what to do. Um, But we have to kind of fill them in, and you have to, as you're reading it, imagine the play. Now, the first thing to know is that uh, they're fighting with uh, dagger and rapier. So they have a uh, a regular size sword in the right hand and the left hand, they have a shorter dagger. And while on uh, on, the, on the page, you just have that uh, interpolated stage direction, they play. Uh, on stage, this is a big dramatic moment. You know, you, you get the, uh, you know, this is this is the lightsaber duel at the end of the Star Wars movie. Uh, this is the kind of a big exciting scene that you're coming for. Uh, and Hamlet and Laertes uh, fight their first bout, and uh, uh, Hamlet claims that he hit him and asks for a judgment. And he says, a hit, a pa- very palpable hit. Uh, so the king says, well, Hamlet, this pearl is thine. Uh, give him the cup. And Hamlet says, I'll play this bout f- uh, first. Set it by a while. Come. They play. Again. You have to imagine it's a very, much more elaborate than that when you see it on stage. Another hit. What say you? I do confess it. Um, our son shall win, the king says. And uh, the Gertrude says, he's fat and scant of breath. Here, Hamlet, take my napkin, rub thy brows. The queen carouses to thy fortune. Good madam. Gertrude, do not drink. I will, my lord, I pray you pardon me. So again, imagine what happens here. So the king and queen are on one side of the stage, 
and the duel is happening on the other side, and the king in the fir- after the first round he brought the cup over to you know they're like boxes in a ring they each have a side well he's taking it over to Hamlet's side uh, and now uh, in between the the before the next bout begins the queen has walked over to Hamlet to uh, to give him her napkin he's sweating she wants to you know get get that sweat out of your face um, and the cup is right there where Claudius put it. And she carouses to his fortune and drinks from the poison cup. And the king is across the stage. He can't knock it out of her hand. And he just tells her, don't drink. And uh, he says, I will. And then the king's aside. It is the poisoned cup. It is too late. And Hamlet says, I dare not drink yet, madam. By and by. In a minute, I will. So now there's Claudius. He's seen the poison that was supposed to be for Hamlet is now has now been drunk by Gertrude, the woman he murdered his brother to be with. Um, and Hamlet is not taking it. Um, and Gertrude, come, let me wipe thy face. And Laertes, he's on the other side of the stage near uh, uh, Claudius, says, my lord, I'll hit him now. I do not think... T- the king's like, you know, whatever... You know, it doesn't. You know, if you kill Hamlet now, so what? The one woman he loves is dead. And then Laertes says, and yet, it is almost against my conscience. He's having pangs of conscience here. Um, he says, come for the third, Laertes. You do but dally. Um, so then they play, and nothing, neither way, no, no point scored. Then Laertes says, have at you now. So. What happens here is somehow in the you know different production stages this different ways, but Laertes must wound Hamlet with the poison sword, and then in the scuffle in their exchange they switch rapiers, so now they're taking each other's swords. So now Hamlet has the poison sword in his hand, uh, and he wounds Laertes. Again, all of that happens, and you, you, you know they don't really explain it very well in the stage directions. Uh, but while all of that is happening, apart them, they are incensed. So it's, this has gotten to be a real brawl. It's no longer a formal uh, 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 fencing match. They're really going at it now. Uh, and then the queen faints. Look to the queen there. Uh, and Horatio says, they bleed on both sides, so they've both been wounded by the poison rapier. Um, and says uh, they ask Alceric asks how is it Laertes says why as a woodcock to mine own springe Alceric I am justly killed with mine own treachery now do you notice here how both whose idea was it to put poison on the sword that was Laertes idea who does that wind up killing Laertes whose idea was it to put the poison in the drink, Claudius, who winds up getting killed because of that? The woman he loves, Gertrude. Um, he says, justly killed with mine own treachery. You know, the trap that I set for somebody else has been sprung on me. There's a great poetic justice in that. Uh, of course, the, the queen is, is passed out and says, uh, the king is still trying to you know brave this out. She swoons to see them bleed. 
And Gertrude says, no, no, the drink, the drink. Oh, my dear Hamlet, the drink, the drink. I am poisoned. So she realizes in that moment um, that she's been poisoned. It's not clear that she realized who poisoned her. Uh, she may go to her grave not realizing that the, her second husband killed her first husband. Um, Hamlet says, you know, let the doors be locked, you know, treachery, seek it out. And Laertes confesses, you know, Hamlet, thou art slain, no medicine in the world can do thee good, and thee there is not half an hour's life. The treacherous instrument is in thy hand, unbated and envenomed. The foul practice has turned itself on me. Lo, here I lie, never to rise again. Thy mother's poisoned. I can no more. The king, the king's to blame. So he's not only confessed his own sin, he's told him that Claudius arranged this all. And Hamlet says, The point envenomed too, then venom to thy work. So he takes the venomed blade and scratches Claudius with it. Um, and says, Here, thou incestuous, murderous, damned Dane, drink off this potion. Is thy union here? Follow my mother. Uh, now, union is a nice pun there, right, for the marriage union. The union meaning pearl and union meaning the marriage union. Notice that in exactly the way that they were planning to kill Hamlet twice, both with the poison blade and with the uh, the poison cup, that happens to Claudius instead. He's scratched with the blade and uh, po- has to, forced to drink the poisoned. Um, and Laertes says, he is justly served. It is a poison tempered by himself. Exchange forgiveness with me, noble Hamlet. Mine and my father's death come not upon thee, nor thine on me. So this moment of forgiveness from Laertes here at the end. Notice, too, that all of this time where Hamlet was plotting about when, whether, and how he was going to kill Claudius, and he does it in a moment of rage. And also, think about this. Whose death is he avenging? Is he avenging his father's death? He doesn't say anything about that. He says, follow my mother. It's almost like he's avenging his mother's death and his own. Uh, It's in in this kind of moment of rage. Uh, It's kills Claudius, but in a very surprising way, and in a way that makes it not the kind of clear, clean revenge that you might have expected, or that you probably wouldn't expect if you get used to the the uh, frequency that the play Hamlet is on. So, Gertrude has died, Claudius has died, Laertes has died, Hamlet is dying, In fact, he says, I am dead, Horatio, wretched queen, a Jew. You that look pale and tremble at this chance that are but mute or audience to this act, had I but time, as this fell sergeant death is strict in his arrest, I, oh, I could tell you, but let it be. Horatio, I am dead. Thou livest. Report me and my cause aright to the unsatisfied. 
so he's saying, I, remember the ghost said, you know, I, I could a tale unfold. He said, oh, well, I could tell you a lot, but oh, I, I'm not going to be able to. I'm not going to live long enough. Horatio, you do it for me. And then Horatio comes, he says, I am more an antique Roman than a Dane. Here's yet some liquor left. So Horatio is going to kill himself. He's going to drink the poison and die himself. Um, now, here's yet yeah, again, we have the theme of suicide sounded. And here, the, the way we think about it is, or the way Horatio thinks about it, is noble, an antique Roman. The Romans committed suicide when their master had been had died to show their loyalty. Uh, so that's the way he is is approaching this. Very different from the the considerations about suicide that Hamlet had. Very different from the doubtful suicide of Ophelia. But all the same idea and those rhyming variations on a theme. But Hamlet will have none of it. He says, you know, how, how could you do that? And then nobody would know. You have to live uh, to tell my story. Then we hear the a march far off, an invading army. Who's coming? Young Fortinbras. says, oh, I die, Horatio. The potent poison quite o'ercrows my spirit. Now, remember in the first scene of the play, when the cock crows, the spirit of his father leaves. There's another echo of that. He says, I cannot live to hear the news from England, but I do prophesy the election lights on Fortinbras. He has my dying voice. So tell him, with the occurrence, more or less, which have solicited, the rest is silence. So that's his last line. Uh, no speech, but silent. The rest is silence. And Horatio's lines, Now cracks a noble heart. Good night, sweet prince. And flights of angels, sing thee to thy rest. Look at the little word play there of rest. The rest is silence and sing thee to thy rest. Same word with different meaning. Silence and singing or, or uh, juxtaposed there as well, that whole uh, image of silence and speaking that's been going throughout the play. So then in comes Fortinbras. Now, one of the many beautiful ironies of this play is that Fortinbras, who in the first scene is the threat to the security of the state of Denmark, in the last scene becomes the one who reestablishes the order of the state of Denmark. He becomes the new king. Um, that's very typically Shakespearean and particularly typically uh, typical of Hamlet. But uh, now Fortinbras comes in, and also the ambassador from England, to announce that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Uh, Tom Stoppard uh, wrote a play called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, and it's the story of Hamlet told from the perspective of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And it is, it's hilarious and uh, a really great play in its own right. But uh, we don't have time to talk about that here. But if you get a chance, read it or see it even better. Um, so Horatio is, this going, is going to fill in and tell them the, what, what's, what's happened. Um, as he says, um, you, so shall you hear, line 364, of carnal, bloody, and unnatural acts of accidental judgments 
casual slaughters, of deaths put on by cunning and forced cause, and, in this upshot, purposes mistook, fallen on the inventor's heads. All this I can truly deliver. And that's a that's a nice summary of all of the uh, wacky things that have happened in the in the play so far. Uh, Horatio uh, and Fortinbras kind of stand and bring back order to the the state. Uh, Fortinbras says, "Let four captains bear Hamlet like a soldier to the stage." Um, such a sight as this becomes the field, but here shows much amiss. Go. Bid the soldier shoot. And we end with the sound of the cannon going off, the one that so disgusted Hamlet. Uh, another very ironic moment. Uh, so that's the end of Hamlet. Now, in Shakespeare's time, after the play was over, they had a dance. So you would end on this tragic note, and then all of the actors would get up and they would do a little dance number to entertain the, the crowd. Uh, it seems very incongruous to me, but that's how they would have, would have done it. And I want to think for a moment and talk for a moment about Hamlet as a tragedy and about what a tragedy is and how Hamlet fits that mold. Now, there are a lot of things that people say about dramatic tragedies uh, in fact, interestingly, there's probably more written about you know, criticism defining the nature of tragedy than any other genre. It, it kind of excites the critical faculties in some way that other genres don't. Uh, and some of the things you may have heard about are, are the idea of the, the tragic flaw. Uh, the idea that the tragedy is that the, the main character has some flaw in their character which leads inevitably to their destruction, uh, which is an interesting enough theory, just that I've never seen a tragedy that actually bears it out. Uh, what's Hamlet's flaw? That he's too smart? You, you can see you know, a case being made for it, but in, in a way it doesn't really... It's a way of explaining away the tragedy rather than explaining it. And one way to think about that is to ask yourself, what are the things in real life that we call tragic? They're, they're usually events that have to do with a, a sudden death that seems terribly unfair. Uh, death itself isn't always tragic. If, you know, the 97-year-old uh, billionaire dies in his bed with his 20-year-old wife, most people would not say, oh, what a tragic death. Uh, but if a, you know, a, a 10-year-old girl is run over by a drug dealer, that is something that we think of as tragic. What tragedies are, what they remind us of, is that the world is not as rational and orderly and purposeful as we would like it to be. That it doesn't fit in the, the, the moral categories that we want to impose on it. So tragedy in real life is a reminder of not just our mortality, though it often is that too, but uh, of how contingent things are. 
of how fragile the the world around us is and how easily it can be disrupted. So that's what now the events in uh, dramatic tragedies are often of that kind. Uh, you know, you you get tragic deaths in tragedies, but the literary genre of the tragedy is somewhat different because what a literary tragedy does is it puts those tragic events in an aesthetic, artistic container. So there are a lot of tragic things that happen in Hamlet. It, it confronts, you know, death and the great issues that Hamlet wrestles with. But it confronts them in a play that has an orderly beginning and middle and end. And beyond that, in Shakespeare's play, it not just as that, but it's full of these echoes and coherences and resonances. It seems beautifully and perfectly of a piece. It all fits everything. You feel like everything fits together, that every thread, uh, you know, would uh, resonate with every other thread in the play. So the play itself, though it's about things that are tragic, that violate our sense of justice, it's contained in a, it's delivered in an artistic way that reassures us of order and coherence and that everything fits together. And it's that kind of very unusual paradox that I think makes tragedies so powerful. And it makes Shakespeare's tragedies particularly powerful because the kinds of, uh, I've, I've mentioned some of them by no means all, of the, the patterns of imagery and motif, uh, the, just the, the way characters are used as foils. All of those are kind of the, the resources of literature, uh, of rhyming ideas and characters and themes um, that delight our minds and make us feel like everything fits together, that it's all right. Uh, and that's a particularly powerful thing to do when the story you're telling is about things going completely wrong. Um, and Shakespeare was just better at that than anybody else. Um, and Hamlet is about as good as it gets when he was doing that. All right, well, I guess for this class for Hamlet, the rest is silence, though there is certainly more to say if we had time. Uh, but for next time, I'd like you to read some poems by John Donne. Uh, now, John Donne was a near contemporary of Shakespeare's. He's just a generation younger. Um, and we're going to be looking at, for, spend a couple of classes looking at his poems. The first one for next time, read uh, six of his love poems. And those are The Flea, The Good Morrow, The Canonization, a valediction, forbidding mourning, the relic, and elegy 19 to his mistress going to bed. So we're going to be looking at those, and I want you to think about the way that the imagery in these poems is different from some of the sonneteers that we've looked at. Uh, you'll see that Dunn uses much more kind of original and bizarre imagery and metaphors, and he's very famous for his very what are called metaphysical conceits, and we'll talk about what those are. 
but think about what kinds of analogies and metaphors he uses and how they're different from the metaphors and analogies we've seen in the Petrarchan love sonnets that we've been reading. How is his vision of love different? And look particularly for instances of paradox, uh, Dunn loved paradoxes. Uh, and those kind of, that kind of fusion of opposites uh, happens repeatedly in his work. Uh, now, it's just, again, it's just six poems, but I'd like you to read them carefully and repeatedly so that you really know them well before you hear me talk about them. Uh, and if you have questions about the, the poems or anything else, uh, my email is drmarkwomack at gmail.com. Thanks for your attention. I'll talk to you next time.